summer podcasters. This is Lawson Heights Alliance Church with another Sermon MP3 for you. This is July 31st, 2022. Today we have myself, Pastor Mike Newson, coming to you with God's Word. So may God bless you as you listen. Well, it's good to be back. Oh, who am I kidding? Vacation is really awesome, isn't it? Vacations are nice. I'm, I think I'm going to hate retirement, actually, because you never get a vacation, right? You just don't. Every day is the same. You wake up and you do your tasks, and I don't know if I'm going to be good at that. I don't know. I might have to just keep going and keep going like Bob here, preaching all the time. But don't get me wrong. I love my work, and uh, to come back to you is awesome. Uh, we, who doesn't love summer vacations, but we do miss you guys when we're gone. We do make it a point of going to other churches. We would not miss church. Being in God's house with God's people anywhere, anywhere uh, is always awesome. And so it's good to see the different kinds of experiences and different kinds of expressions of how God's people worship Him. And, uh, but it's always better worshiping at home. And what, with that in mind, I want to ask a question this morning. What do we mean by worship? You know, I put out there uh, for a couple of weeks, I don't know how well it got promoted while I was gone, but just that I would be doing a Ask the Pastor series in the month of August. Well, I got one ask, and there were two questions on it, and this is the one. It's, it's about worship. What, is, what is real worship? And so, I, I mean, I don't know why no one else put out. I mean, think about it. I mean, there are all kinds of questions, like, like what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Uh, you know, uh, what do we do about uh, this, that, or the other thing? I mean, but you know what? You lost your chance. I'm never going to speak on those issues again. Uh, but we will speak about this one topic throughout the month of August, and it is an awesome topic, and uh, it is about what is worship. And so think about that. What does worship mean? What does it mean to be in a worship service like you're in right now? In most of our minds, we imagine an event, don't we? like this, with singing and sermon, but is this really what God has in mind when He talks about worship in the Bible? In this next month, we're going to be investigating this subject. What is it? What is worship? What's it for? How do we engage in it? Today, we're going to be defining it, and in the weeks to come, we're going to be expanding our capacity for it. So in order to fully understand the scope of worship for our lives, I want you to understand and go away today with the knowledge that there are three transitions that need to take place in our thinking if we're really to get and understand what this topic of worship is all about. The first is this. Number one, understand that worship is a verb. You have to understand that worship is a verb. A verb is simply an action word like the word move, right? But it can also be a word that conveys an occurrence, like they moved the car. Or it can convey a state of being, like they were moved by that song. But according to Webster's Dictionary, worship can also be a noun. But when it refers to an event containing worship, like a worship service. But obviously, when it refers to the act of worship, like we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks, it is always a verb. Dictionary.com defines worship like this, reverent honor and homage paid to God or a sacred personage or to any object regarded as sacred. It is is a formal or ceremonious rendering of such honor and homage. 
Now, our English dictionaries are a human, oftentimes secular attempt to define something that the definer really has no personal understanding and experience of. This definition, then, is from an outsider looking in on what we do. So what we really need to do is we need to get at the writers of Scripture because they knew what true worship and the experience of worship was all about. Now, there are several Hebrew and Greek words in the Bible that are translated worship. You know that the Bible wasn't originally given in English, right? It was originally in Hebrew and Greek, and there, are one, there is one primary Hebrew Old Testament word, shakah, in the Old Testament, and one primary Greek word in the New Testament, the word proskuneo. Both mean exactly the same thing. Yeah, you, you might be surprised, though, to know that it does not mean to sing, to gather together in a congregation, to go through a ceremony, or even to get quiet and solemn. Like in most modern usage, the most occurring biblical word for worship is always a verb, an action, and it literally means to bow, to prostrate oneself, to fall down on one's face in subjectivity to God. When was the last time you saw that in a church service? We even sang about it, to getting on our knees, but I, I didn't look back, but I don't think anybody was on their knees in that song, was there? Some churches have kneeling benches in the pews to make opportunity for that when it comes up in song or in, a, or in the public reading of God's Word. But probably even getting more, and not to be critical, but when was the last time you did that in your own personal worship time with God? When was the last time you bowed in subjectivity to God? Now, some have a problem with this action of bowing or falling prostrate on one's face before God. In a book called The Trials of Being Agnostic, a, con a conversation with skeptic Wendy uh, Kaminer, uh, it writes this about her discomfort with this thought. She says, something that greatly bothers me about public religiosity is the mandate to worship. I don't have a lot of respect for the view of God as some authority figure who wants you to come and kneel before him every week. There's this sense that you are to go to church or synagogue or mosque or whatever it is that you go to and in some way abase yourself before the Lord. That seems to me to be such a demeaning way of, seeking, of seeing God. I think her view of worship and of God are really quite an, a reflection of our modern, materialist, unsupernatural worldview, which many people in your life network will probably have. In this land of democracy, in this land where all people are created equal, in a land of rugged individualism and my rights over your rights, I won't believe it unless I see it kind of a, a culture. You can hardly imagine anyone wanting to prostrate themselves like that before the Lord, or much less anyone. It just triggers images for them, they say, of colonialism and oppression, and who wants that? But you know what? Unless we understand this requirement for active submission, we will misunderstand what we are to do in worship and what the Lord requires of His worshipers. Yes, the Lord requires things of His worshipers. And as a result, we will miss the deep and meaningful relationship with God that we all long for. And if we are willing to subject, but if we are willing to subject ourselves and fall on our faces in total humility, 
we will be saying by our actions, Lord, you are immeasurably greater and exponentially more worthy of my reverence and my respect and my whole self than I am ever going to be able to ascribe to you. And that would be a good place to be at. Let's face it. If you had the opportunity to meet the Queen of England, you would bow in subjectivity to her royal person and position. That would just be an expectation of you and you would do it. Or what? You'd never get an audience with her, right? That's just part of it. Same with God. Same with God. Until you are willing to bow, not just in your head or in your heart, but also with your body in subjectivity to the monarch of heaven and earth. You will never get an audience with him. It's just part of the rules. Surely he is worth more, worthy of more of an act of total surrender and submission than the Queen of England is. He is the the entire universe to us. Why would we not be willing to subject ourselves? But really, until that point is resolved in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, and in your strength, you will remain what we call an agnostic Christian, someone who isn't all that convinced that God exists but wants all the benefits that God promises. So when the Bible uses the word worship, it means more than I think we ever think of. In John 4, we read of Jesus' definition as he explains it to what may seem to his contemporaries like an unlikely audience. And in this occurrence, in this encounter, Jesus explains how the way people are worshiping now in his day is about to change. Turn to John chapter 4. I know that this is a very familiar story to you, but it has far more instruction to us than just evangelism. It has great instruction for us in the area of worship. John chapter 4. Okay, you there? We're going to read to verse 26. I have this big open space now. I did a wedding here yesterday, and they did it all on the main floor, and so I got this extra space here to wander. So if I get a little close, don't get intimidated. If I spit, just do this. All right, you there with me? It's up on our overhead here. There are Bibles in the pews. And hey, listen, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take one that's in the pew. Uh, We would love for you to have it. Verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he has gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Now, the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, so it was probably pretty hot. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "Uh, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, 
You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Gulp. Our uh, ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit, in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes... He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Jesus talks about a change that's coming. A change in the way true believers will worship the Lord. Remember, worship is a verb, right? It's activity. But how, it's, how it gets activated, Jesus says to the woman at the well, is about to change. The second transition that you need to know in order for worship to become all that it is supposed to be for you is this. This is the second transition. Appreciate that worship is not about a time or a place or a procedure. Worship is not about a time, a place, or a procedure. In Old Testament times, worship had become rather institutionalized. That was never God's design. Jesus said in verse 23 that true worshipers would need to transition from worshiping God in sacred spaces, like on mountains and in temples, to worshiping God in the Spirit and in truth. In the Old Testament, both for the Jew and also for the Samaritans, if you wanted to worship God, you had to go and be in sacred space. It was just part of the deal. But no longer, Jesus said. No longer, because time and space do not matter, because God Himself is not restricted by them. As He says in verse 23, God is spirit. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come, verse 23, when true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in, in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Did you notice that? 
God the Father is seeking worshipers. Roll that around in your head for a second. God the Father is seeking worshipers. And apparently, a particular kind of worshiper who will worship Him in a particular way. God our Father is seeking worshipers. And every morning, God is waiting to see if you will be one of them. Have you been? After today, will you be? Now, I'm reading from the 2011 edition of the New International Version of the Bible. When I came to faith, the NIV was the first Bible that I was given, and I've just read it ever since. There are all all kinds of other really good translations out there. They're awesome. But I was given the 1984 edition when I was first saved, and they've updated it since, the translation committees. And now the ones that you have in your pew and probably on your lap, and this one here in the pulpit, is the 2011 edition. Now, you may have a different translation, and like I said, all of them are really good translations of the Bible, but sometimes there are differences in the way they state a particular verse. The translation committees that produce these translations are trying to do their very best to express not just a word-for-word translation of each sentence, but also they're trying to help the modern reader understand the original meaning of the text. Like here in verse 24, John 4, 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit. You'll see it capitalized there, meaning the Holy Spirit and in truth. Interestingly, the 1984 edition of the NIV reads verse 24 this way, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit, lowercase s, and in truth, as does the ESV, the NASB, NLT, and just about every other translation. In spirit and in truth is really the correct word-for-word translation. But I do kind of like the reading of the 2011 edition, of the NIV. It doesn't make it wrong, it just is they're trying to help the modern reader understand the context. And I like the reading of it. Worship in the Spirit, capital S, meaning Holy Spirit and in truth. See, most commentators will claim that the word Spirit here in verse 24, uh, pneumatai, has a reference to the Spirit of a person, their human spirit, rather than the Holy Spirit. They're trying to draw a difference between a right place of worship and a right attitude for worship. And that's all good. But all commentators also agree, as you read over verse 24 in their commentaries, and many of them will make the note in the, in the verse that without the Holy Spirit, true worship of the Father is not possible. That true worship is indeed energized by the Holy Spirit. And in three future chapters in John, John 14, verse 17, John 15, verse 26, John 16, verse 13, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, No one can say Jesus is Lord, which is a declaration of truth and also an expression of worship. He says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I like I think in, in, in the Spirit and in the truth also reinforces what Jesus said in his encounter with Nicodemus in the chapter just before this. He says this, verse 5 and 8 of chapter 3, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So Jesus says, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, gives birth to spirit, right attitude, right heart. So in spirit, lowercase s, and in truth, really does mean that his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Because the spirit gives birth to spirit. And when you read the entire Gospel of John, I mean, isn't it just gushing with attention to the Holy Spirit and our need to be indwelt with Him, be led by Him, and be transformed by Him? So, do you see that here on on Sunday mornings in our worship service? We come to church, we can sing songs, we can give our offerings, we can listen to a sermon, and yet, you know what? It is still possible in these worship services to never actually worship God for some. Never actually encounter God in spirit, in the spirit, and in truth. And because the means by which we worship, by, by which we true worshipers worship, that is, by the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes it clear that in John chapter 4, that a person is able to worship God at any moment, at any place, not just in a church or on Sunday mornings, but anywhere and everywhere. And we dare not restrict how anyone worships in the Spirit and in truth. So you can worship God at home, over live stream like some of you are today, You can worship God on a mountain. You can worship God in your car. You can worship God in a church building like this. You can worship in a care group. You can worship at school, at work, anywhere. Isn't that awesome? Because God is spirit. And we get to worship him in the spirit and in truth. And that changes everything. And you can worship God by any posture. Prostrate before an altar with hands raised, hands clasped, singing, shouting, in silence, dancing, sitting, or standing still. Because it's not about procedure either. And not only did the means and format for worship change, but those who could participate in worship changed as well. What Jesus was declaring here in John 4 to the Samaritan woman was that God would also accept worship, and for her this would be good news, from non-Jewish people. Until that time, the Jews thought, and it was true, that the experience of God's presence was the privilege of of God's people, the Jews. But Jesus is declaring that true worshipers would no longer apply only to Jews, but even to Samaritans, whom the Jews called dogs. Jesus shouldn't even have been here at this well. He should have walked all the way around Sychar, around even Samaria to get to his destination. But I think he had another intention. True worshipers, Jesus says, will also one day be Greeks, Palestinians, Canadians, Indians, First Nations peoples from every continent on the planet, if they worship in the Spirit and in truth, they will be able to worship the Lord. And that's good news for us, isn't it? Because 
because it changed from then on, we now get to worship the Lord. These are the first two of the three transitions that need to take place in our thinking. We have to understand that worship is a verb. So in other words, are, are, are you doing it? Are you active in worship? And do you do it in the Spirit and in truth? Have you been born of water in the Spirit? Have you been born again? Because you can't worship unless you are. Are you bowed down in, subject, in subjection to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Appreciate that worship is not about a time, a place, or a procedure. There are no limits to the worship of God. The third transition that needs to take place in our thinking is this. Number three, accept that worship is all about encountering God. Accept that worship is all about encountering God. Worship then, as it is a verb, is above all other things, a life-changing encounter with a personal, infinite, holy God that demands a response of joyful, willing humility on our part. It's always been that way, and it will always be that way. Author and radio host Nancy uh, Lee DeMoss has described worship this way. I love this definition. Worship is a believer's response to God's revelation of himself. It is expressing wonder, awe, and gratitude for the worthiness, the greatness, and the goodness of our Lord. It is the appropriate response to God's person, his provision, his power, his promises, and his plan. Here is a woman in John chapter 4 going about her daily business, not in a temple, not in a church, not even at an altar, but at a public water supply. And for no apparent reason, God is sitting in the sidelines of her daily routines. In fact, I think if he hadn't said anything, she probably would have passed him by because she wasn't supposed to talk with him. Because Samaritans were forbidden to associate with Jews. But Jesus initiates the encounter as he always does. Just reflect on your own life. And he asks her, will you give me a drink? Stunned, she dares to ask him, verse 9, how can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answers her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Not aware of the, multi, the magnitude of the encounter that she was having at the moment, she's still curious for more information now. And Jesus is willing to enlighten her. He begins to reveal her truth. Her truth. Her secret sins. Sometimes something that only God could do and or maybe at best a prophet of God, but he does it. And she begins to realize that there's a God moment happening here. And Jesus, seeing that, she, he begins to open her eyes further to the truth of who he is before her. John 22, John 4, 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. I... You have to understand what's going on here. This is, this is something that's building in our own head, and it's not written here in Scripture, but when he says this, salvation is from the Jews, you know what's going on in her mind. What Jesus was doing for the Samaritan woman was reminding her of something that she already knew to be true. 
that God had revealed himself to the world through the redemptive history of the nation of Israel, not her nation. And by saying what he said in verse 22, Jesus was reminding her of the promise given by God to a barren couple by the name of Abraham and Sarah, that God would make them into a mighty nation and that as a nation they would bless all the other nations on the earth. Because from them, Messiah would come. He was reminding her of when God spoke to a shepherd named Moses, who was running from the law. And he speaks to him through a burning bush, and miraculously then, through this, after this encounter, delivers that Jewish nation out of the hands of their oppressors, the Egyptians, and leads them into the promised land. He was reminding her of King David, a man after God's own heart, who encountered God and grew the nation of Israel to prominency and great power as a nation. The nation of Israel. And then of the prophets of Israel, major and minor, who encountered God and with warnings and promises declared the coming of Messiah who would save His people from their sins, His people Israel. At that moment when he said that, the story ended in Jesus' eyes. This poor, undeserving woman was standing face to face with the God of Israel, the Savior of the world, and she didn't even know it. <sighs> Sends shivers down my spine just thinking of it. And she says to Jesus, verse 25 to 26, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Friends, God's desire, his great desire is to encounter us. And sometimes he's sitting in the sidelines of our life waiting and waiting so that we can worship him so that we can recognize Him. If we do recognize Him, <laughs> you will be begging Him for the Spirit and truth so that you can worship Him well. Here is a woman whose total life was a mess. She had five husbands. She was now living with a man that was not her husband. I can't even imagine the things running through her mind, but Jesus obviously did. He knew her situation in detail. And he knew that she needed an encounter with God. Jesus knew her need, and it wasn't for ordinary H2O. It was for the Spirit to change her. I love this next part, verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. See, friends, being in the presence of Jesus, it does something to you. It brings light into your life. Maybe that's why people put off being in God's presence. Maybe that's why we have neglected our worship to, a one and a half, to relegated it to a one-and-a-half-hour worship service on a Sunday mornings. We're afraid of the consequences. We're afraid of being exposed by being in the presence of God. 
But notice that the woman at the well, she wasn't intimidated by Jesus. She celebrated him. And she celebrated that he knew everything about her. He, come, meet a man that told me everything I ever did. Oh, we know what you did. You're the woman that gossips around the town. She celebrated everything that she was discovering about herself and about Jesus. And she wanted this living water. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She didn't know much about Jesus, but what she knew liberated her to praise and worship. See, true worship will have an unusual effect on your surroundings. When this woman encountered God, it contributed to an atmospheric shift over her entire city. And the result was a spiritual blindness got lifted. Hmm. Makes you wonder what could happen here in our city if we would worship the Lord truly. Fellow worshipers, an encounter with God will, will and should leave you awestruck. So much so that you drop everything in order to share that experience with others. And you know what? It should also make people around you curious as to what has changed in your life. That's why this is my definition of worship. Worship is the celebratory activity, whether instinctively or willfully, of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength in response to being moved by the worth of God. Fellow worshipers, in order to fully understand the scope of worship for our lives, there are three transitions that need to take place in our thinking. First of all, we have to understand that worship is a verb. It's active. It's an activity. Are you doing it? Are you engaged in it? Are you doing it in the Spirit and in truth? Have you been born of, the, of water and the Spirit? Are you born again? Number two, appreciate that worship is not about a time, a place, or a procedure. There are no limits to, the worship, to our worship of God. The Spirit changes all that. Number three, accept that worship is all about encountering God. So if you've come to Sunday mornings and you have not encountered God here for a while, then like this woman at the well, ask for those streams of living water to flow out of you so that you can. See, the problem isn't God. God is here already among us, just like this woman at the well. Trouble is our attentiveness to His presence. If you're wondering where God is these days, just look around. He's right there beside you. And perhaps like this Samaritan woman, you have not seen him clearly. Because maybe you're afraid of what he will bring out of you. Bring up. And mostly it's probably because you're too unwilling to submit to him. Now you can stay an agnostic Christian all you want, and, but then you'll just stay frustrated and conflicted all your life. Or you can bow before Him, reverence Him, embrace Him, submit to Him, ask the Holy Spirit to flow through you like living, living water, talk to Him, be in His presence. He's there for you. He seeks worshipers. Worship Him. In a second, we're going to sing a song called, Oh, Worship the King. Worship team, why don't you come on up? Oh, Worship the King.
I don't know how old the song is, but most of you, if you're over 50, you probably have most of it memorized. We're going to add a little chorus to it that will change it a little bit for us. But listen just to the first two lines. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. We gratefully sing His power and His love. Friends, if we want to worship God, we have to come before Him gratefully. We have to understand who He is, what He is. We have to understand that worship is a verb. And so, when you come into this song and you sing it, sure, you can just sing the words. You, you can sing it out loud and you probably belt it out because you know it so well, but try not to fall in love with the songs just for the sake of hearing your own voice sing it. Listen to what it says about God and embrace the God of this hymn so that you will truly be able to worship.